1: This is New Books in Science Fiction, a production of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Who Feeds the Feed edition. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Elliot Pepper, a prolific writer who's as fast at generating ideas as the page-turning plots of his techno-thrillers. The first book in his analog series, Bandwidth, came out in May, and now he's literally counting the hours until the second volume, Borderless, lands tomorrow, which means it will in fact be available for purchase by the time this episode drops, which will be in about two weeks from this moment when we're recording it. In addition to writing seven books, Elliot has also helped build technology businesses, launch new publications, and he's even designed games. Elliot, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so
0: much for having me, Rob. I've been looking forward to this conversation.
1: Congrats on the imminent publication of Borderless. I wonder what's your state of mind right now with the book's release. It really is just hours away, isn't it?
0: <laughs> it is. Yeah, We we uh, I'm really glad we got this on the schedule. I feel like whenever a, whenever a new novel comes out, I have this uh, sort of special combination of excitement and anxiety it's sort of like if you imagine yourself as a small child the day before your birthday or something like that um so you know there's there's always a lot of nervousness there but i'm also really um really excited to see the book out in the wild and to to hear from readers and see what they think
1: bandwidth and borderless are the first two books in your analog series and figuring prominently in both is a company called commonwealth and I was trying to figure out how to describe commonwealth. I, you know, I was thinking, oh, it's a combination kind of of Google Glass and Facebook and Twitter and maybe even a bit of Microsoft. <laughs> but then I realized that nothing I could say really does it justice because it's, it's more dominant than any of those things. So, so I'm going to ask you to describe it.
0: Sure. Well, um, I usually describe it, I, I basically take the description you started with and take it a few steps further. So the way I usually describe commonwealth is that if you imagine every tech company you've ever heard of, so the, the few that you mentioned, like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, but then let's throw in Amazon, let's throw in Apple, let's throw in um, uh, all of the Chinese tech giants, which many Americans aren't quite as familiar with. Um, and if you wrap them all up, throw them in the oven, and then you multiply that by a thousand and you've got Commonwealth. So in the, in the future that these books portray, there is a ubiquitous digital feed that sort of connects everything. It, uh, it, it uh, drives all the driverless cars in this future, and, and uh, it, it powers your home. It, it runs the electricity grid. It runs behind all of the financial markets. It's basically the Internet um, if the dreams of folks building the Internet are realized in a few decades.
1: And I think one way maybe to convey how powerful Commonwealth is is to talk about this bar or I guess it's a private club called Analog Mm -hmm. where the series gets its name. And that's where where Dag, who's the hero of Bandwidth, and then Diana, who's the lead character in Borderless, this is a place they go when they really want to have a truly private meeting. And I thought it would be interesting if you told listeners, you know, what what happens when you enter this, this club called Analog?
0: yeah so i there's actually a fun origin story behind the idea of analog
1: itself, so
0: you know this was a few years back, and me and my wife had had a friend over, and uh, it was what you know just for like a, a small dinner party so we we made dinner with with two friends and we were hanging out afterwards and having a glass of wine, and we got into one of those conversations where you sort of go like you, you start um messing around with an idea and it goes way too far and dominates the conversation for for probably about an hour and we had this idea where we were you know we all live we live in the bay area the san francisco bay area so uh tech is obviously a big part of the economy here and and it's sort of like front of mind for a lot of folks in this area and we were talking about how you know with with how uh pervasive even the digital feeds of today can be right. It, it's, it's hard to pull yourself away sometimes from social media. You know, we all sort of live in our email inboxes all day long. And so sometimes it feels like um, technology has really sort of like in, invaded every aspect of our lives. And we thought, wouldn't it be fun, um, you know, if, if you could have a bar, or, you know, a club where you could go where where none of that was possible, right? Where rather than, seeing groups of friends eating dinner and all checking their phones instead of actually conversing, everything was about being in person and being present. And so we sort of have this armchair discussion of how great of an idea it would be to actually open a bar where there's no, there's no connectivity and really it's all about being there with the people you care about, with the people you want to spend time with. And, opening an actual bar is a lot of work. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up sort of taking that concept and weaving it into these novels. And so in, in, in this future, there is this, this quote, actually in San Francisco, and when you walk in, this pervasive digital feed that really surrounds everything, that is, is how you access money, it's how you communicate with people, it's, it's layered onto every experience you have in your day-to-day life, it disappears when you step through the door. So, so for someone in this future, someone who lives with a feed that is much more pervasive than even the internet that we live with today, suddenly you, you step through this door and all of the things that you're used to using are gone, right? And, and you have to be there. You have to be present. You no longer have this membrane that's intermediating your experience of the world. And so in a world where the internet is that much more pervasive, people who have things to hide might want to take advantage of the lack of connectivity in a place like analog, right? So, uh, you know, there's sort of a lot of espionage work that winds up happening there. There's a lot of interpersonal intrigue that happens there. Celebrities seek out this because it means they can finally get off the grid.
1: And it's fascinating when people get there because there's someone who greets everyone, Nell, who is very attentively worried that, you know, be careful, are you ready, because it's so disorienting to go into this room where there's sudden silence, because the feed really is constantly playing before people's eyes as well. So their vision actually changes when they walk into this space.
0: Yes, that's absolutely true. So uh, I'm going to lecture later tonight and to get there i'm going to use google maps right (laughs) um you know i i already have uh, all that calendar information as well right i know who's giving the lecture what it's about um where and when it starts uh, what i need to get in the door and then you know i'll need to have my credit card information i'll need to have all that kind of stuff well you know in this future you wouldn't actually need to pull your phone out from your pocket and you wouldn't need to carry a separate credit card or anything like that you know, if I was biking to this lecture as I plan to do later this evening, I simply see the directions laid out in front of me as I bike up the road. So, if, if listeners have heard of augmented reality, this is a good example of that, right? That if you're uh, driving around in your car or you're you're riding your bike, that rather than needing to glance down at a phone, you can look at a heads-up display that's actually showing you precisely where to go, and and you could uh, text your friend to make sure they're also coming to the lecture and, and maybe see where they are on the same map, right? And find them in the crowd that way. Um, re- reference notes that you might take during the lecture or, or uh, you know send them to yourself afterwards for reference. Um, there, there's so much information that we use on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we think of it as pretty convenient because it's certainly convenient compared to 30 years ago. But 30 years from now, it's gonna be that much more different.
1: Well, I'm very impressed by your characters because I have trouble if, say, I went to this lecture, I would, if I wanted to tweet something, I would completely zone out and not be able to hear the lecture for about 10 (laughs) minutes as I compose my tweet and make sure it's grammatical. and, (laughs) And yet your characters are like on the fly, you know, doing the equivalent of tweeting and sharing and sending each other things in the middle of conversations. And I don't doubt that, that the human mind is is capable of that if we are, like our children, are, are far more right. adept at things like that than, you know, those of us who were raised in a, or at least had childhoods in an analog world. Yeah. So to dive into the story of bandwidth, and I do want to touch and try to talk a little bit about both books. But in Bandwidth, there's a group of programmers and psychologists and others who call themselves the island, and they're manipulating people's feeds to essentially covertly influence their thinking about important policies, you know, and in in particular, they're concerned about climate change. And it's an idea, I think, that really rings true today, given all that's been written about, say, you know, the Russian meddling in our elections, but this seems more effective and in a way more more foolproof, I guess. And I, I wondered, could you talk about how this group, the island, is using people's feeds to influence policymakers and politicians to, to nudge them to to change their minds about policies that they feel are important?
0: Absolutely. So, you know, I wrote this book in the lead up to the 2016 US presidential election. So, this was during the primaries. So, it was actually long before the later revelations about Russian meddling on Facebook and such came out. And what really caught my attention was that the news was really getting me down. And although it was upsetting, it did not feel actionable in the sense that. Very little that changed any decision I I was actually going to make about my ballot later in the year. And and so I realized that 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 was having a really negative impact on my life. Just like, you know, if you eat an unhealthy diet, you're going to have negative impacts on your body. This sort of negative information diet was having a real dramatic impact on my um, emotional and mental health. So I made a concerted effort to. Off reading the news and read books instead. And what I found is that within a few weeks, it dramatically changed my outlook on the world. That I had much more energy uh, just to do the regular things I do during the day. I had a lot more emotional sort of reserves to deal with any tough situations. And I also had a lot more to bring to the table to take like the political action that I wanted to do, to volunteer, to donate time. And so I realized that that was actually a really powerful transition in my own life. And that was the realization that became the core theme of bandwidth. And so my thought was, hey, what if you had this group of, as you said, psychologists and hackers all teamed up to intentionally shape the worldview of very specific people, so for, for listeners who might have themselves been reading the news and the more recent news about actual meddling in the 2016 elections, the, the way that that is treated in bandwidth is actually somewhat different than what you've seen in the headlines. So um, if, you, if you look at sort of Russian meddling in the 2016 elections, basically what was actually happening, they were running ad campaigns, similar to what any company might use on Facebook to advertise a product or service. And they were covertly using those same tools to try to algorithmically shift the behavior of large groups of people. But those campaigns had limited effectiveness, as you, Rob, just said, right? Like an ad campaign doesn't often actually change the way you see the world. And so what actually goes on in bandwidth is much more subtle than that. So in bandwidth, rather than running campaigns against millions of people at once, this group targets specific, important people. So those people might be politicians who, who hold a lot of sway. They might be business leaders. So if they wanted to, say, influence a vote in the U.S. Senate, they would target senators and other sort of power brokers and decision makers that they knew would have a hand in it. right? And then they would profile everything they could find about them. So imagine. an incredibly in-depth FBI profile on a person with an entire team devoted to it. And then that same team leverages all of the insights and intel they've been able to dig up on this person and uses it to carefully curate their experience of the feed. So they carefully curate all the information that pops up in their feed. So if you want to imagine this in your own life, Imagine that you, when, next time you sit down to watch Netflix, every single movie that Netflix serves up to you when you turn on your TV is actually not random. And it's, and it's not even um, algorithmically sorted automatically by Netflix. There's actually a team of people behind it individually choosing those television shows and documentaries and what have you in order to prime you to care about a certain issue. And at the same time, they're also doing that in your in- email inbox. So they'll prioritize messages that pertain to this issue, right? They will change everything from the music you listen to, to the, the podcast you see, to sort of the headlines that seem to be dominating your own filter bubble in order to shift how you see the world. And in fact, you'll never feel like you're making a decision against your will you will simply believe that whatever law they wanted you to help enact is actually the right thing for you to do, is the right thing for the country, and so you'll throw all your weight behind it.
1: And it seems unethical, Mm -hmm. but I was going to say that the difference between the Russians, say, hacking or some of the things we've heard about, and this seems to be that in the case of the ads you were speaking of on Facebook, it could have been stories that weren't even true. But in bandwidth, there's no reason to question the veracity of what people are seeing, but they are steering certain kinds of presumably true stories towards people and other things away from them. So so one could say that they're still basing their decisions on, on true information. It's just been very subtly curated and manipulated without their knowing it.
0: That's absolutely right. So th- they are not creating fake news, right? They're not, they're not actually uh, manufacturing um, you know, inaccurate stories or, or something like that to create a false set of beliefs about the world. Rather, they are actually sorting, ordering, and surfacing true facts about the world uh, in a way that shapes someone's opinion. So a good way to think about this is, what do we do when we have a question you you're going to make a google search for something and you know google has this seemingly impossible task right like there are there are billions of of websites literally billions of websites that they have to somehow sort through to give you an answer they have an immensely complicated algorithm that is extremely secret that calls on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different variables to try to sort all of the entire internet, essentially, the entire open internet in a way that answers your question. And they do it so effectively that usually that first search result, and if not, certainly or usually one of the first three search results will answer your question, right? Being the filter between you and the infinite glut of information that no human could ever process represents an enormous power in society, right? Like being able to actually frame the conversation, even if you're not manipulating the content of the conversation. And that is what this group does so effectively.
1: I'm wondering if your story is underscoring the fact that the algorithm that you referred to that Google uses is not transparent, it's opaque, and we don't really know. I mean, for all we know, there is a kind of manipulation going on, and of course, Mm -hmm. the alt-right and such have accused Google of doing things like that, and I think most people are inclined to think that they're not interested in doing that, but the truth is no one really knows exactly what they're doing, and in a way, this activist collective that you have created in bandwidth seems almost like a metaphor for mm. the way we get information today.
0: Yeah, I think that I, yeah, I think that's, uh, that reading makes sense to me. You know, I love the thing I'm always interested in are what are the most difficult questions that don't have obvious or easy answers. Right? So I try to dig out like sources of contradiction in day to day life and in our relationship with technology in the world. And that's what I think you just described, right? So, for example, you know, Google with that algorithm, first of all, most lay people wouldn't be able to make sense of it, even if it was made public, right? But there's a really good reason it isn't made public. And that reason, is that if Google tells you how it ranks searches, people cheat. So if everyone knows what gets you to the top of Google, then every website will try to get to the top of Google. In fact, there's a large industry called search engine optimization SEO, that is exactly this. The whole industry, all it does is try to take websites and optimize them for Google search. And you can see why if you search for the word podcast, and this podcast came up at number one on Google every time, uh, you know, you would have, you know, tens of millions of listeners, right? So there's a huge incentive for people to try to cheat the algorithms that are most successful. So there's this strange set of conflicting incentives where in some way, uh, to remain useful, Google needs to keep some secrets. But when they have so much scale that that their answers actually impact the lives of billions of people around the world, not even limited by, you know, what country you live in, like that's an enormous set of responsibilities and who gets to, who gets to make that decision, right? That's a really, really difficult question. And honestly, if you sort of take a step back from only the Google example and you say, hey, how are these you know like how are these new technologies actually changing how our economies work and how our societies work and then how does that change how we should govern these new technologies you know that's i think that's the question of this coming century one of the things that i really tried to wrestle with in bandwidth is is all the different sides of, of that issue the group that you were describing that's trying to manipulate world events they're doing so for really good reasons. They're doing so because, you know, th- th- they want public education to be accessible to everyone, right? Like they're, they're, they're doing this to pass better laws to deal with climate change, right? And, and that's what I find fascinating. It would be almost too obvious, right, if, if they were uh, cheating the system to, to some nefarious means that they just wanted money out of it or something like that. But these people are smart and they're not, you know, they're altruistic. They're not, they're not jerks. Um, And and they're doing it for reasons that I think a lot of people will be sympathetic to, but they're doing it in ways that are really hard to sign off, off on from an ethical perspective.
1: You had me dreaming about being number one when anyone puts in the word podcast. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well we just we have to recruit these people to work for you, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: And then Sarah Koenig would know who I am, like everyone knows who right, she is.
0: Right, right, right.
1: <laughs> okay, I'll stop dreaming and get back to asking uh, the questions I want to ask and <laughs> and I will point out that Dag, uh, the main character in Bandwidth, he doesn't seem to actually mind in the end for the large part that he had been manipulated because he he basically says that the experience of going through this subtle mind manipulation brings him to a place where he can finally do what he thinks is right. And, you know, whereas before he was working as a lobbyist on behalf of this humongous oil baron who was essentially plundering the environment and taking advantage of climate change as the Arctic was melting to drill for oil there, which in in turn you know, sped up climate change so he could drill for more oil, you know, he now has a conscience. And he, so it doesn't really seem to bother him. So that just adds to the ambiguity, I guess I want to say to the mission that this, this collective, this secret collective is on in terms of trying to manipulate people for policies they feel are worthwhile.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think that for me, when, when I was trying to think about dag and and how he wrestles with this one of the things i tried to reflect on in my own life is how many many people think of themselves as almost the dictator of their own identity like we like we have this uh, little humongous in our in our head right like our identity ourself and that it is completely autonomous that you know even if the outside environment isn't what we like like obviously you know, if you buy a lottery ticket, you'd love to win the lottery and you can't control that, that we still control all of the core sort of decisions that make us who we are. And that, uh, that feels like a, it's a very seductive worldview, right? Because we want agency in our lives. We, we want the freedom to choose. But I certainly didn't choose who my parents were or, you know, where I was born or, the stories they told me when I was a little kid that I can't even remember, right? I I don't even know why I chose to focus on certain things when I was a little kid and that those memories stuck with me while others didn't, right? So in many ways, our identities are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And yet, those stories so often have origin outside of ourselves, right? Right. It's like when you have a mentor or a great teacher who helps you look at the world through a new light, often what you're doing is you are incorporating a story from them into your own worldview. And so I I think, uh, you know, a lot of our identities is shaped uh, by our environment. That doesn't mean that we don't make important choices. It just means that by acknowledging the fact that much of what we call ourselves actually comes from outside of us, we can better understand ourselves and our role in the world.
1: Let's try to talk a little bit about borderless. We've focused for uh, most of the interview on bandwidth, and we're kind of running out of time. But, but maybe you can just set up the plot of borderless. And that starts three years after bandwidth, and it moves the focus from Dag, who is the main character in Bandwidth, to Diana, who plays a supporting role in Bandwidth, but she becomes the main character in Borderless. So this is sort of interesting.
0: Uh, This is a trilogy, but it's not a linear trilogy. So readers could actually, you know, read it in any order they choose. And the narrative arcs are fairly independent. I mean, there's a lot of links, right? Like the, the books share a lot of the same past, and they certainly take place in the same future but the the stories themselves can really stand alone. Where Bandwidth really tried to wrestle with this question of how do feeds shape our lives? How do they shape our identities? And how do they shape our politics? Borderless takes it to the next step. So Borderless asks, okay, you know, with this, enormous tech platform called Commonwealth, which we, which we talked about earlier in the conversation, when this new piece of infrastructure, of information infrastructure becomes such an integral part of every part of our lives and economies, what does that do to the traditional power structures that we have in our world today? What does that do to nation states, right? If, if, if the economy is global, if information is global, what does it mean to be a country if you can't really have control over your own economy, if you can't you know, control the information your citizens consume or use? And so in borderless, this comes to that basically those two forces come to a head on collision, right, where um, Commonwealth is challenged, directly challenges and is challenged by a national government, the United States, right? By, so you could almost imagine it as Silicon Valley versus Washington, D.C. <laughs> and and in the midst of this sort of maelstrom, Diana, who is this refugee turned secret agent, is thrown into the mix and winds up right at the, at the middle of this story. And as she's trying to basically escape alive, um, you know, she also has to reexamine the role that Borders have played in her own life. You know, I'm a child of, refuge, of, of immigrants. My, um, my father is Dutch, um, and uh, my paternal grandfather was Jewish. He's surviving members of his family. Um, from World War II, the rest of his family was killed in camps. And my paternal grandmother, my Oma, was Protestant, and they married against uh, their parents' will. And she wound up actually becoming a secret agent in the Dutch resistance uh, during World War II. So while my grandfather hid in a secret compartment in their apartment, uh, my grandmother would ferry information, supplies, and people to help Jews escape the camps um, and, and help people get out of Europe. They, uh, they were worried that World War III was gonna break out in Europe between the US and, and the USSR. And so they eventually emigrated to the United States Uh, with, with my father uh, and my uh, two aunts. So, you know, they had three children. Um, And so, uh, you know, they moved to the U S and eventually my, you know, many years later, my dad met my mother, my mom is Canadian. And so I ended up being born in California and growing up in Oakland, but in a household that was very atypical among my friends. So, you know, my household was sort of half Canadian, half European. Um, And, and, uh, and so there was sort of just a lot of differences in the food we ate and sort of what we talked about and all that kind of stuff. And, and most of my friends whose families have been in the U.S. for a long time. Um, you know, my wife is, is Colombian. She, her, her family fled to the U.S. in the mid-90s, um, you know, after the, it went in the midst of the drug war down there. And, um, uh, you know, last year we actually hosted a, we volunteered as a part of a refugee resettlement program and uh, hosted a Ugandan refugee in our house for nine months. Um, and, uh, and he's now become really a part of our family. It's, it's been a really wonderful experience, He's working extremely hard to build a life here. So, you know, all of those things were keenly on my mind, especially with sort of what's in the sort of headlines today. Um, you know, that, that was really keenly on my mind as I was working on this book and really thinking about how does living a life that crosses borders how does that shape someone? How does that shape Diana? How does that shape who she is and the decisions she makes? And I think that's really at the heart of this story.
1: A key question in Borderless seems to be not only who controls the feed, but which kind of institutional organization, whether this private business, Commonwealth, which is in fact borderless and spans the world, is better for maybe imposing certain kinds of regulations like carbon control regulations and such or whether we can trust national governments which as we're seeing around the world, I mean in Brazil just you know yesterday or the day before That's terrifying and things that are going on here in this country, this rise in nationalism, it's almost like the technology company as portrayed in borderless is, offering a positive alternative a way out of these national boundaries which can create so many problems for people for refugees and for people who are suffering around the world
0: well you're good rob i i I can tell you've interviewed a lot of authors before because that is the central theme of book three (laughs) Um, so, uh, so well done yes um yeah so uh Commonwealth, this this sort of ubiquitous tech platform, is able to make effective climate policy by basically smuggling it into their terms of service agreement, right? The reason why it works is because they are global. So, you know, they actually, in some ways, have more power than Beijing or Washington, D.C. or Brussels does to, to, to make these kinds of policies, let alone countries that aren't superpowers, right? So... From a certain perspective, you could look at these massive multinational corporations and cross your fingers and hope that, you know, if they make good decisions, because those decisions are by definition multinational, they're not limited by geographic area, that those decisions could be really effective, right? So if they make the right decision, it might work. So that's certainly exciting. The problem is that what you've just done has created a crisis of representation because if the more that a private firm holds power in the world, and this is something we already are seeing as a part of our system in the US being such an issue, the, the less agency all of us have over our future because for all of its problems, we still vote for government leaders, at least here in the US, right? So we may vote in terrible leaders, those leaders may try to cheat by stacking the Supreme Court, by uh, gerrymandering, right? So they they may try to manipulate the system, they may not work with each other effectively, but they are still elected, right? Like at a sort of very fundamental level, even if it can be manipulated, they are elected. If Google was making geopolitical decisions at the scale that happens in this book, we don't even get to pretend that we elect Google's board of directors. And if you look at, for example, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, he has worked very, very hard and very diligently over many years to make sure that he remains the one in charge which is with as much unilateral power as possible. He has systematically tried to retain voting shares in Facebook even after it went public. And you can understand why, right? If, if you built a company and, and from scratch yourself, would you want to hand over decision-making control in the company you built to a bunch of people who don't know anything about it and might not share your values? But the problem is that when you have an organization that has the scale that these tech platforms do, even in the world today, let alone in the future, bandwidth and borderless portray, you start running into this crisis of representation where so much power is held in so few hands that disaster is inevitable. And that—that uh, that is the issue that book re
1: wrestled with,
0: that if, you if Commonwealth is, is as successful as it is, if the feed is as pervasive as it is, then how the feed and how commonwealth is governed, that requires an entirely new coming of age. And that requires a coming of age at the same scale as the age of our current geopolitical system, which was really you know the Treaty of Westphalia, right? When uh, in, in Europe, when sort of the current social contracts of what it means to be a nation state were drawn up, that, that's, you know, we, there's a reckoning coming, whether we like it or not, because, uh, you know, when, when private technology platforms reach this scale, they have to grow up. And any, anyone or any group of people with that much power, um, they're going to be the target of a, of a, lot, a lot of dissent. Right, and, and that's something that we're going to have to grapple with for a long time to come.
1: So this will be my last question. If Larry Page or Sergey Brin or Mark Zuckerberg were to read your analog books, what would you like them to be thinking about or what would you like the takeaways to be for them? Hmm.
0: I think I, I would hope that they come away from these books thinking that the world is more complicated than it was when they started reading my book. And what I mean by that is uh, like, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes, right? If I was Jeff Bezos. <laughs> right? <laughs>
1: um,
0: and so, you know, if, if I'm someone in that position of power, part of what got me there is having a really clear vision for the future I want to build, right? My, the vision that I articulate has to be so compelling and so, so, so just clear that I get all of these different people to sign on to work with me to help build it. And so when you get really, really good at, at building a vision that you have for the world, I think that there is a danger there. There's a danger that the map is not the territory, right? That, that the clarity of your vision actually belies the nuance that is in the universe around us every day. That in fact, so much of life is beyond our understanding, even if we try to, con- try to control it. You know, if Mark Zuckerberg or whoever, you know, reads bandwidth or reads borderless, that will leave them with questions. It will leave them with weird questions that sort of nag at them while they're in the shower or (laughs) late at night (laughs) that make them wonder about what pieces are missing from their vision. What different angles would somebody have on the vision they're trying to build if they aren't from Silicon Valley, right? If they aren't from Seattle, you know, if if they uh, grew up in a refugee camp in Greece, Right. Like what what how how does the world look from that perspective and how do we build a world? How do we build a future that is inclusive to all those different points of view that actually rather than only creating convenience that actually creates more room for human agency in the world? That's what I'd hope they come away with.
1: That sounds good. And I hope they do read your books and then I hope they promote them on all their various platforms.
0: That that would be very kind. <laughs> I, would, I would very, I deeply appreciate. It. If you're if you're listening, thank you in advance.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and promote my podcast too if you guys are listening.
0: Exactly, we will. We can have Larry Page put it at number one, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just push that button, <laughs> that number one button that sits on his desk. It's a big red button. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction.
0: Thank you so much for having me. As as I said before, I you know I came across the show because I love so many of the books whose authors you've spoken to. So it's it's a real delight to uh, to come on and have this conversation.
1: Well, it's a delight to have you. I have been talking with Elliot Pepper about his Analog series. The first book, Bandwidth, came out in May, and the second book is called Borderless, and it is coming out. The, the Tomorrow, October 30th. We're recording on October 29th, and it is coming out tomorrow. And actually, is the third book, is there a date already for publication? It'll be coming out next May, May 2019. And what's its title? Breach. Breach. Excellent. All right. Look for it, everybody. And please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction, and please consider leaving a review in the uh, Apple Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of quivernyc.com. The editor-in-chief and the founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. And you can find me at robwolf.net. Thanks very much for listening.